Welcome to Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm your host, Ty Bannerman. Today we are going to be taking a look back at the local news stories that affected New Mexicans last year and how they might develop in the year ahead. And we are going to talk about how these topics will impact the coming legislative session as well. That starts next week. Our guests today are reporters who can walk us through their picks for the most notable, important, or interesting news stories that they covered in 2019, from immigration to education to public health, and how those stories made a difference to the people who live in our state. And we want to hear from you. What New Mexico news stories stood out for you in 2019? Or what national events had an impact on your life? Give us a call at 277-KUNM. That's 277-5866. Email letstalk at kunm.org. Or tweet us at letstalknm. That's hashtag letstalknm and join the conversation. Uh, Now I'd like to welcome Hannah Colton in the studio today. Good morning. Now you're a beat uh, your beat is um, public health uh, here at KUNM with an emphasis on education in New Mexico. That's right. So, uh, Hannah, in 2018, a state court found that New Mexico's educational system violated the rights of some students uh, by failing to provide them with sufficient education. The lawsuit spotlighted indigenous students, English language learners, uh, students with disabilities and students who come from backgrounds with low incomes. How did the state respond to that decision in 2019? So there's a lot of talk last year of the governor wanting this education moonshot, right? Uh, I wanted to say that right right away this morning and maybe not again throughout the program because <laughs> um, I noticed the governor isn't using that, that language anymore, that moonshot for education. But last year, um, the legislature did pass you know, a teacher pay raise across the board. That was maybe the biggest one with the biggest um, immediate impact Mm -hmm. um, in schools. Um, I believe it was a 6% raise. um, So all teachers got that bump. Um, $62 million towards extended learning programs. Um, So that was where schools were supposed to apply for that funding, Mm -hmm. take it and extend their their school day, their school year. Um, We saw a lot of that plan kind of fall apart over the year just because the timeline for implementation was really Mm -hmm. quick um, and schools couldn't really turn it around between the end of the legislature and the start of the school year in August. Um, So that one is, you know, the impact is sort of yet to be seen. Um, And then there were some other, you know, there there were other increases. Uh, There was a slight increase in the at-risk index, which addresses um, those student groups that you just mentioned, so Native mm-hmm. American students, biling- uh, bilingual or English learners, um, students from low-income backgrounds, and special education students. Um, but I've heard, I have to say, I've heard all around the state since the end of last legislative session that those groups of students are still, still have a lot of needs that are not being mm-hmm. met, whether it's because of staffing or... Um, mm-hmm. Or other just resource gaps. Can you tell me more about that at-risk index? Like, what does that actually mean? So um, that relates to the way that New Mexico funds its public schools. Mm-hmm. So we have this equalization guarantee, right? So instead of the the public school funding being completely tied to like property taxes, like it is in other states, um, you have a centralized system where it's supposed to be equal or equitably distributed. Um, and so the at risk index um, basically shifts that per pupil amount based on how much the state thinks an individual student would be quote unquote at risk and people have problems with that terminology, Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of, um, but so, so that 
at-risk index bumped up slightly. The idea is, you know, funnel more money to schools that have those students who are considered at risk. Um, But like I said, advocates that I'm hearing from are saying, you know, it wasn't nearly enough. Are we seeing any impact from from those increases in funding and, and changes to the index? Hard to say. I mean, nothing, nothing dramatic. Um, I'd say perhaps a boost in teacher morale overall, which has to be good for students, right? Um, but as far as the extended learning time programs that were supposed to roll out and the kind of uh, K3 plus and other um, programs that got more funding that were supposed to provide these extra opportunities, a lot of that hasn't been rolled out yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the Albuquerque Journal reported recently only a dozen schools in APS have actually gone over to that extended learning time based on the funding from last year. So that's, that's about a dozen out of about 140 schools. So you can see that the implementation is kind of rough. What does the extended learning time actually look like when it does get implemented? Um, I think that's a question for a lot of schools and for a lot of people. I mean, there are models. Um, K3 Plus is one. Just different different calendars, basically. And APS is grappling with this at the moment, too. You're going to have schools voting on what calendar they want to use moving forward. Um, and so it's supposed to... It's with a lot of these education questions. It's you get, um, you know, a disbursement or extra funds from the state, right? And then it's going to be up to schools and educators and administrators to actually implement them. So with the extended learning time program, the idea is, you know, more time in school, more days at school in the year can get students more resources in theory, right? It can get you more days of, uh, more days of, of work with, with school, of help with schoolwork, more days of potentially free reduced lunches. Um, All of those things are meant to serve um, these students who've who've not been getting served as well, um, but like I said, it's the implementation is rough. So you have schools trying to figure out how are we gonna how are we gonna go to our families and say no, actually you have ten fewer days of summer, for example, or so those kinds of things are very much still like big question marks. And what about how do they uh, how do they determine whether or not these uh, these in- interventions and things are working? I don't know. That's a good question. That's kind of up in the air still. Yeah. I mean, in the lawsuit, in the in the Martinez-Yazi consolidated lawsuits, um, there's a lot of, you know, witnesses in that case pointing out places where, you know, New Mexico has, um, New Mexico has the Indian Education Act, for mm-hmm. example, a state law um, that is supposed to provide for a lot of these things, like the the culturally appropriate curriculum, like the teachers who are bilingual or who can, who can, you know, instruct students in their language, for example. Um, but the lawsuit in a lot of cases is pointing out where the state doesn't actually know or didn't actually mm-hmm. know what was going on. So I think um, under M- Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, there is some capacity building happening. I mean, I hear from, I hear from advocates and from educators like, oh, at least at least it seems like the state is paying attention to us now, that kind of thing. But I think there's still a lot of um, gaps in the in the oversight and in the coordination. And it sounds like this is going to be a long process, no matter how you look at it. Yeah, I think so. So let's uh, let's shift a little bit and let's talk about um, local and national elections and how they have impacted education in New Mexico. What's your read on that? Well, I have been trying to keep a closer eye on local elections this year. Um, we did some coverage of the school board election for Albuquerque Public Schools. Um, and I have to say, 
there were no there were really no changes after that election. I mean, the three incumbents were reelected. Um, so that's one thing. But I will say there are a lot of, you know, there are younger candidates coming in at different levels of elections, right? Mm-hmm. We have, we're seeing younger candidates for the state houses um, and the APS school board election had a little bit of that like younger, more mm-hmm. progressive or more, I would say radical energy coming in. So we, we did have a, a younger candidate, um, named Verlin Coker, who sort of was bringing up some issues related to education that the other the other school board members, the other candidates weren't really talking about. So things like, um, you know, how is it that we're going to keep relying on oil and gas funding for our, for our school funding when we know that we need to be doing something about climate change? So I would say that's, that's a big way that I see local and state elections impacting education is, is right now in changing some of these conversations, which right. with just younger, younger candidates coming in. And that has been a huge story this year, the, uh, the impact that the oil uh, money has made on education. How does that work? Uh, well, the oil and gas just accounts for a, a major part of the state budget and public education. Uh, I think I saw in the governor's budget that she wants this year, she had public education as 47% of the state's budget. So it just, it it will always, you know, however the state is getting its money, it will always be however public schools are getting their money here. Right. So shifting to, uh, to higher education, what are some important stories that we're going to need to keep in mind as we go into 2020? Right. So one of one of the governor's top priorities, she said, is she says, is this opportunity scholarship. Um, So her plan is to make college at the state's uh, 29 public institutions tuition free for all eligible students. And this sort of eligibility is still a little bit up in the air, but um, it sounds like it's going to be like a last dollar type of plan, which means a student. You know, the state wants a student to go apply for FAFSA, get their federal aid, get their grants, whatever else they're eligible for, and that then the state will pay mm-hmm. for the college after that. Um, so this is something that Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is really pushing for. She says it's going to cost $35 million and help uh, 55,000 students get access to college for free. Um, it seems pretty popular for obvious reasons. Okay, well, this seems like a great time to bring in uh, Dan McKay to the conversation. He is a staff writer for the Albuquerque Journal, and he is going to be covering the upcoming legislative session. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Certainly. And uh, let's let's talk a little bit about this, uh, this free college proposal that uh, Governor Lujan Grisham is uh, suggesting for the legislative session. Um, how do you expect that proposal to play out? Uh, well, it's a little early to say. At this point, uh, the legislative panel that has prepared its own budget recommendations uh, did not include funding for the governor's uh, college scholarship plan. Instead, they want to propose uh, a similar amount of money that would just go to bolstering existing student financial aid programs. Um, so we may see a uh, kind of a philosophical debate that will play out over how to uh, help students, whether it's best to just sort of move to this tuition-free plan for in-state residents um, or if the state should spend more money sort of bolstering uh, the existing student financial aid programs. What would be the difference in impact for those two proposals? Um, the total 
bottom line dollar amount is similar. I think they're both at around $35 million. Um, You know, a, a lot of the details are not yet worked out. Um, on the governor's side, uh, she would like to um, basically attach some strings to this money if colleges accept it. Um, so she would look to perhaps limit tuition increases uh, in exchange for getting the money. She might... Uh, require colleges to uh, improve their their tutoring um, or other services like that. Um, but a lot of this is still still to be determined. And are we seeing like what what are the uh, what would be the requirements under the Michelle Lujan Grisham proposal for for who exactly would be eligible for the for this free tuition? Um, it sounds like it'll be pretty similar to the lottery scholarship. There will be sort of some some basic minimum uh, requirements that you have to meet. Uh, but again, I think a lot of this is flexible and they want to, uh, the administration wants to help adult learners also. Um, so I think a lot of these details would have to be worked out in subsequent agreements. Uh, uh, but the gist of the plan is that she, she, uh, she wants to, to go back to sort of the original purpose of the lottery scholarship, which was to essentially pro- provide, you know, a tu- tuition-free college to, to in-state residents. And how does the, how exactly does the lottery scholarship work at this point? Um, why not just go right back to how it used to be? Well, the lottery, um, it, there are a lot of things that affect the lottery scholarship. There's the uh, sort of what amount schools set their tuition at, um, and then there's a limited amount of money that's actually generated by the lottery, uh, and that amount fluctuates. So there are um, there are some different pressures that have sort of made the lottery scholarship uh, less influential over time and covering less uh, less of tuition than it used to. I see. Well, this is Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. I'm Ty Bannerman. Uh, should college be free for residents, or is that too much of a burden for the state? We want to hear from you. Give us a call at 277-5866. Um, we're going to take a quick break. Support comes from the New Mexico Philharmonic, presenting Brass, Winds, and Bach's Air. The NM Phil plays Brass and Winds Masterworks, 3 p.m. Sunday the 12th at the NHCC. Tickets and info at nmphil.org. The Rothstein Donatelli Law Firm is committed to supporting KUNM, where the law firm's criminal practice can help clients petition state courts to permanently remove public records related to criminal charges and certain convictions. RothsteinLaw.com. For some tribes, winter is a time to tell stories and play games. Join us for the next Native America Calling as we take a closer look at traditional shoe games and moccasin games. They're not only for fun, they're community events and teaching tools that include traditional storytelling and language. Weekday mornings at 11 on KUNM. Welcome back to Let's Talk New Mexico. We are talking about the big news stories from 2019 as well as the 2020 legislative session. We want to hear from you. Give us a call at 277-5866 or email us at letstalk at org, or uh, tweet to hashtag letstalknm. And I want to go back to uh, to Hannah Colton 
uh, real quick here. What what all what other big stories in higher education um, are are things we should take a keep our eye on this uh, this coming year? I wanted to mention um, something that happened just sort of in the last part of 2019. Um, In October, the University of New Mexico faculty voted to unionize. And then in December, um, faculty at San Juan College voted to unionize. So just an interesting, you know, bit of of labor organized labor movement here in the state. Um, And with, you know, it, it, it may sort of seem like okay, the faculty in their ivory tower, like they're unionizing. And that's, that's a good point is like, it's, it's a more privileged career than maybe other unions that we think about. Um, but still a really, really interesting, um, politics around that. And I just wanted to mention that, um, uh, faculty voted on that UNM unionization from all across the state, right? So UNM has campuses in Albuquerque, Gallup, Taos, Los Alamos, uh, and Valencia County. So, um, a and, big change. Yeah, a big change for, for those faculty. And are we expecting to see any uh, any changes to how higher education works, or like pay raises for adjunct professors or anything like that as a result of uh, of this unionization? Um, nothing specific, but I think in general, you know, unions say that they argue for their for their employees to, or for their members to have better working conditions, right? And so those those faculty who I interviewed um, for that story were all saying, you know, our working conditions are also students' learning conditions. So they're very much thinking about the quality that they can provide to students at those institutions. So uh, joining us by phone is May Ortega, a former public health reporter here at KUNM who recently left our affiliate for Colorado Public Radio. Good morning, May. Good morning, Ty. How are you? It's it's great to talk to you again. So uh, let's talk about one of your big stories from 2019 uh, that you uncovered, uh, the one about liver transplants. Uh, refresh our memory on what that series was about. Sure. So um, New Mexico has one of the country's highest rates of liver-related deaths and of liver disease. And it's been this way for a decade, something around, you know, somewhere around there. And uh, I decided to just look into, hey, okay, that is unfortunate. Let's uh, see what people in New Mexico can do about that. And, um, yeah, I discovered that there is nowhere in the state for folks to get a liver transplant if they wanted one, which was, I don't know, very interesting just on its own. And the deeper I looked into it, the more curious the situation became, I guess. So what did you find out? Well, there were a lot of things. Among them, I realized after talking, you know, getting data and talking to doctors from around the country, New Mexicans are less likely to get on even the wait list to get a liver transplant. And that has to do with the distance and with, you know, your income and things like that. Um, So compared to the average person, a New Mexican is about 10% less likely to make it onto a wait list. And it's already incredibly hard to make it onto a wait list. And um, even if you get um, on the wait list, it doesn't mean you'll get a liver because, surprise, organs are scarce and livers are no exception to that. So why is it that uh, New Mexicans in particular are facing this, this hardship for liver transplants? You know, there actually used to be a liver transplant center in Albuquerque, but it shut down several years ago for there's 
a lot of reasons, you know, behind it. And we explore this in this four-part series that I produced about it, uh, three-part series I produced about it. Um, but part of it was that there weren't enough people getting transplants, first off, and also there just wasn't the the infrastructure. To have a liver transplant center, it takes a lot of money and a lot of resources, more so than with, you know, let's say kidneys, because the liver transplant is known in the medical community as one of the most complex organ transplants that you can do because there's so many essentially like wires you got to connect and things like that. So eventually, you know, it just wasn't working out. They had to shut it down and the Mexicans have been driving to Denver or Phoenix or Tucson ever since. And that's pretty far away. And the recovery time is pretty rough and it's just, it's just a really rough situation really. And did you speak to folks who were personally impacted by this? Yes, I spoke to a few people. One of them, um, a man I spoke to for the first story in the series, he works in Rio Rancho, and he had liver cancer. He actually told me he found out he had it on his birthday. And um, he was on the wait list. He had six months to live. He was on the wait list for like three. And then he got on the wait list, had his transplant, the transplant went fine, and then a few days later, he uh, he hemorrhaged, and so they had to get him back in there and close him back up again, and it was this whole thing. He's doing fine now. He's had the liver for several years, and, you know, he's grateful for it, but he definitely said, you know, he had family in Denver, which is where he got his surgery, and he said if he hadn't had family there, it would have been a much harder thing because otherwise he would have had to stay in a hotel for like a month and just recover that way and go to the hospital every day for checkups and all that stuff. And it's just a complicated situation. And there was a woman I spoke to also who was very interesting because she not only had one liver transplant, she had two, which is extremely difficult to even get one, right? Um, but she rejected the first one after like a year. And so she had to get right back on that wait list and get another liver She's doing okay now, and, you know, both of these people are now on anti-rejection meds, which is what you have to do. You have to take them for the rest of your life to make sure that you keep whatever new organ that you have. But they're here, and they both were very grateful to be alive. It's a scary thing to not know if you're going to make it, you know, two months down the line because of a bad liver. And how long were the average wait times for for getting uh, getting the liver transplant? On average, you know, it fluctuates a lot, but there was, you know, anywhere from six months to a few years, Um, but it's not the same as it is with kidneys because if you're on a kidney wait list, you can get dialysis and kind of stretch your time, but with a liver, you can't do that. So you do usually can only, you know, have to wait uh, six months at the most before it's time to make a decision. You got to do something. And where do, how do things stand now? Are there still long waits for liver transplants in our state? Yeah, not as long is the interesting thing. So when I reported this out, it was about a year ago, something like that. And um, there were about 90 New Mexicans on the liver wait list around the country at any given time. But I looked recently and it went down to around the 60s. I'm not sure what the causes are behind that, um, but I hope it's a good thing. I'm not sure. And has there been any talk of kind of changing the rules or the process around how liver uh, liver transplants work in the future? 
Well, the whole reason, part of the series, you know, the reason for it was that the organization that makes the national rules for liver allocation was going to change things up, um, but it might make things more difficult for New Mexicans because, you know, it's a lot to explain, but distance would be a big part of it. And as I said earlier, since we don't have a liver transplant center in the state, distance is not If that's a big factor, it's not a good one for people in New Mexico. Is there any talk of opening another uh, organ transplant center here in Albuquerque or elsewhere in the state? I asked around a lot and no one seemed very optimistic about that. They said, you know, maybe down the line, maybe five, ten years, not even five, maybe ten years from now. But it is a lot to, uh, to undertake if you want to open a center like that. It's just a lot of money and a lot of resources. And people at UNM, at least who I spoke to, were not optimistic. And I actually spoke to people from each of the hospital, the major hospital systems in the state, and they all said there are no plans whatsoever to do anything like that here. Well, that's not great news, but thank you so much for talking to us this morning, May. Um, I'm going to take a couple of uh, listener questions. I have uh, Mark, uh, who is the president of the Teachers Union at CNM. Good morning, Mark. Hello. I just want to um, make a comment about the actual status of teachers in higher ed. Um, in, here in central New Mexico, 70 to 80% of the higher ed instructors are part-time faculty. Uh, we have no job security. Uh, often we have no um, security from semester to semester, knowing what our income is going to be. The majority of part-time faculty also do not have access to benefits. Many of them have to take public assistance uh, for um, for their health care. Um, so the idea that teachers are privileged is, is really, really skewed. Um, the majority of New Mexicans are receiving education from people that are treated as, as contingent, despite the years of training and the decades of dedication that we've given. And uh, how do you expect the teachers' union to address this? Well, as president of the union, we advocate for the extension of uh, benefits uh, to part-time faculty. Um, CNM is actually remarkable in in extending benefits to um, at least a portion of the part-time faculty and making them accessible. Um, we would also advocate for um, more reliability and scheduling. You know, it's very difficult to organize your life if you don't know what you're going to be doing every 15 weeks or so throughout the year. So that's, you know, that's the purpose of a union is that individuals cannot advocate on their own effectively, but collectively we can advocate for those. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Mark. And Hannah, I, I see you're raising your hand there. Which... Yeah, I really appreciate hearing from Mark this morning. And I don't I don't know much about the teachers union at CNM, so I need to learn more. But um, I wanted to mention, too, that um, the UNM faculty voted actually in two separate uh, collective bargaining units. And the part-time or temporary faculty, which is, I think, what like a lot of the conditions that Mark is talking about, um, you know, way less job security, less pay, just less protection overall. Um, the part-time or temporary faculty at UNM approved the union by almost 90%, uh, whereas the full-timers were way more split. Only about 60% at UNM of the full-time faculty wanted the union. Um, so that just goes to show you a little bit about the about the, the sort of power dynamics um, to say that, just to say that, those adjuncts, those part-time faculty, um, they 
have a lot more at stake or they, they, you know, they ha- they see that they have a lot more to gain by unionizing mm-hmm. because their conditions are, are rougher often. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. And I have a comment from uh, Tom in Albuquerque who wants to, uh, well, he actually wants to ask a question about uh, something that passed last year, which was the Energy Transition Act. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Yes. Uh, there was a huge bill that was seemingly rushed through the legislature last year. Lots of competing um, um, statements on both sides as to what it was going to really going to do, and you know it was going to undermine the PRC. It was going to give B and M a huge break. Um, it was going to leave a lot of the cost on taxpayers. It uh, was going to leave. Um, it wasn't solving the problem of the economic uh, upheaval that was going to be caused in the four corners. Has anybody really? done analysis of that since then? It seems like, you know, there, there's some pieces that are being argued, but where's the, where's, the, where's the piece that says, here are the problems that were out there, here's how we tried to solve them, did they really get solved? Has anybody done that? Okay, Dan, um, what, what do you think? Have, has there been any sign of uh, examining whether the Energy Transition Act uh, is, is working or are the legislators talking about um, bringing it up again this session? Uh, no, those those are good questions, and it, this this is a landmark law, and it's going to play out over probably decades. Um, uh, but no, I don't know that there's been any immediate impact. the um, the The primary debate at this point has been whether the Public Regulation Commission will apply the law to. Um, uh, a proposal that PNM has made that involves uh, shutting down a coal plant in the Four Corners. Uh, so, so things are really just getting started, um, and there are people uh, on, on different sides in, in terms of how they think the law will play out and whether it will do what it's intended to do, but um, uh, things are at a pretty early point right now. So we are taking your comments and questions today. What topics do you think the New Mexico legislature should prioritize in the 2020 session? Call us at 277-5866 or tweet to us using the hashtag Let's Talk NM and tell us about it. Um, I'd like to welcome to the conversation Angela Cocherga with the Las Cruces Bureau of the Albuquerque Journal. Good morning, Angela. Good morning, Ty. Thank you for joining us. Now, as a reporter in southern New Mexico, uh, you've done a lot of coverage on immigration and asylum seekers. What were the biggest stories that you reported on in 2019? Yeah, the the border stories really were the focus of a lot of the coverage last year for southern New Mexico. We saw that humanitarian crisis created by the asylum-seeking families, parents with children, and what are called unaccompanied minors, which are young uh, teens or or children in some cases coming across the border trying to get asylum, trying to reunite often with their their parents in the U.S. A lot of the smaller and and larger communities were overwhelmed by the number of people being released by Border Patrol. And of course, when you're dealing with families with children, there was no place to, first by law, you can't keep children more than 20 days. Um, But we saw these horrible overcrowding conditions in Border Patrol holding cells and some of the families being released into local communities, which had to uh, have pretty much an emergency response. We had uh, 
Deming declaring an emergency, uh, Las Cruces, and providing funding to temporarily care for uh, some of the migrant families as they were moving on to other cities where they would go through immigration court to see if they would qualify or get a decision that they would have asylum. So these uh, these immigrants and asylum seekers were not going into the communities like Deming to stay, but they were rather moving on to other places. Where where were they headed? They all over the U.S. Really to to meet with relatives um, and sponsors, and and uh, they would from there get their uh, court appearances and go through this very lengthy um, immigration asylum process. It sometimes it can take months or sometimes take years for a decision which uh, in some cases people said might serve as an incentive to have people come and at least temporarily stay while they waited for their cases. Now, all that dramatically changed over the summer. We've seen um, since those peak numbers in May um, where the El Paso sector, which includes all of New Mexico, uh, had become kind of the epicenter of of a lot of this migration. Um, Mexico sent the National Guard to both the southern border and northern border right here, which would be our, our border area. And uh, a lot of the, uh, they were detaining, um, not taking into custody, but stopping people from crossing. And so it was this very strange thing where you have people trying to reach the other side to try and turn themselves into U.S. Border Patrol to ask for asylum. But Mexico's National Guard serving as a de facto, as somebody said on the Mexican side, a human wall to stop people so they're stuck in Mexico. And how did that change the numbers of people who are actually able to cross the border? Uh, well, we've seen almost a 70 to, uh, percent decline since the uh, you know June, July uh, summer period. And when people get across, are they going uh, directly into the detention facilities? What What is happening to them at this point? Well, it's the same process that's been happening all along, but people, very few are getting across uh, and, and very few are able to cross at legal ports. Of- oh, Angela, I think we might have uh-huh. lost you. Are you still there? Can you hear me? I can, yes. I'm sorry, go right ahead. Hello? Yes, I... I said very few are coming through, but it's the same process we've seen all along. Basically, someone presents themselves at a legal port of entry or turns themselves into Border Patrol. They ask for asylum. Um, They go through what's called a credible fear interview, which most people pass because it's a very um, basic um, few questions. And then their cases are... Um, handled by immigration court in the U.S., which uh, are overwhelmed right now. But but what we also, the big turning point this past year was what's called Migrant Protection Protocol or the Remain in Mexico um, policy where majority of people are now... You're breaking up on me again. Um, Are you there, Angela? Can you hear me? I can again. So you said this this, uh, Remain in Mexico policy, how is that impacting... The, the vast majority of people are, are waiting in Mexico now. This this means that Mexico is the U.S. is outsourcing its asylum seekers to Mexico to wait a giant waiting room uh, for their cases to go through immigration court in the U.S., which means it's very tough for people to have access to any legal representation or or any any they they really cannot go anywhere until their cases are decided. So they're stuck in Mexico. Where people don't really have relatives, and a lot of these border cities where people are waiting are not the safest places, and migrants have been preyed upon by organized crime and other criminals. So you are listening to Let's Talk New Mexico on 89.9 KUNM. We are looking back at the news from 2019, and we are also looking ahead to 2020. What is on your mind as we are in the first month of 2020? What events or policies have your attention locally, nationally, or internationally? Tweet to us using the hashtag Let's Talk NM or email letstalk at KUNM.org. We'll be back in a moment.
Jeff Nuttall told the audience in Charleston, South Carolina, that he has some feelings about this music. This is a totally selfish and slightly guilty pleasure. And he gets to play it alongside his best musical friends. Find out what's getting Jeff Nuttall all worked up on the next performance today from APM. Weekday mornings at 9 on KUNM. I'm Maria Hinojosa, and next time on Latino USA, the story of the first registered Mexican-American Holocaust survivor. If you look at my dad in those years, you could not tell he had gone through anything that was extreme in nature because he hid his PTSD so well. That's next time on Latino USA. That's Latino USA, Monday mornings at 8 a.m. on KUNM. This is Let's Talk New Mexico. I'm Ty Bannerman. Uh, We are talking about the news from 2019 and the news heading into 2020. I'm speaking to Angela Cochega with the Las Cruces Bureau of the Albuquerque Journal. Um, Angela, another one of the stories that you reported on uh, was the building of the emergency border wall on privately held New Mexico lands. What are some of the issues that came up with that project? Oh, I think we might have lost you, Angela. Um, well, anyway, let's let's talk to Dan real quick here about um, the legislative session and how they are working to address some immigration issues. Yeah, there is um, at least one bill that uh, would impose some uh, new requirements on um, uh, federal immigration detention centers. There are a handful of counties uh in New Mexico that have contracts where they house uh, federal immigration detainees. And uh, there's, there's a legislature, legislator, uh, Angelica Rubio. She's a Democrat uh, from Las Cruces. She's a representative. She's proposing uh, basically that, that New Mexico ban future contracts of that kind. And she also wants to limit or restrict the ones that are now in place, keep them from expanding, um, uh, she also wants uh, requirements for inspections by the attorney general. Uh, so the, this this is uh, an issue that's of interest to legislators, um, whether it'll move forward in this session or be something that comes up uh, in a future year. You know, I, I, it's a little too early to say. Okay, so you're not necessarily seeing a, a big outcry of support for this at this point? Um, I don't know that there has been... Uh, uh, well, it has not been mentioned as a priority by legislative leaders or the governor um, at this point. That does not mean that this bill won't be taken up, however. Um, uh, it, you know, they can, uh, the governor in particular, she can add things to the legislative agenda at any time. Um, she clearly uh, is interested in immigration as an issue. Um, uh, but so far, you know, with a limited amount of time in the session and uh, the budget being a priority uh, among some other some other uh, interesting bills, I have not heard this one mentioned as uh, as being at the top of the list at this point. Okay, thanks, Dan. And it looks like we have Angela back on the line. Good, are you are you there, Angela? I am. Hopefully, okay. with a better connection. <laughs> All right, great. So uh, let's go back to this. Um, this issue with the emergency border wall that was being built on a, on a, on privately held New Mexico lands. What were some of the issues that, that came up with the project? 
Well, the the, the wall is being uh, paid for by funds because President Trump declared an emergency and diverted military funding to, to build the wall since he couldn't get the funds from Congress. And so we're seeing that wall um, head west uh, from Columbus and then coming east from Arizona. So uh, the majority of that so-called emergency wall will be built in New Mexico. And a lot of it is on, uh, of course, public land because that most of the borderland in, in New Mexico is publicly held. But there is private land. And so the issues that we saw crop up, a lot of the uh, conservation groups and uh, environmental groups are very concerned about the impact on wildlife. Uh, this is a very important uh, uh, biosphere for, for a lot of animals that are only um, present in this borderland region. And so they were concerned about that. Um, we do see some ranchers and people right on the border who want that, that wall. They feel that they need the protection, not, not from migrants and certainly not um, from their neighbors in Mexico, but they, they feel that because of the drug smuggling issues, especially in that Boot Hill region, that are long-standing problems, nothing new, that they'd like to see um, a wall go up there. Uh, of course, debates about how effective a wall is, because as, as we've seen, people go over it, around it, under it. So it is a, a tool, Border Patrol will say, but it certainly is not the, the only or ultimate way to stop uh, people or, or drugs. Okay, we are taking your comments and questions this morning. Which news stories from 2019 do you think will continue to have important effects in New Mexico in the coming year? Call us at 277-5866 or tweet to us using the hashtag Let's Talk NM and tell us about it. Um, so, Angela, how do you think things are going to, uh, to be developing in 2020? What should, what should we keep our eyes on? You will see once again uh, with the presidential election, uh, immigration issues uh, become front, front and center. Uh, often when we have uh, campaigns, political campaigns on, on the local state and, of course, at the national level, the border becomes this giant piñata that's kind of bashed for political points. Mm-hmm. And it has paid off for several candidates. So that will continue to be this, this debate over border security and, and, and trying to put up the wall the wall is a huge symbol for a lot of people and president trump will have to deliver on that promise a lot of the 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 barrier going up now is replacement structure upgrades to uh structures that already are in place but uh big upgrades and then there are some areas where it's being extended especially in new mexico and so there will be that debate about the wall and you'll see more candidates coming down to talk about border security even though the vast majority of people migrating this past year were asylum seekers, families from Central America. And so that, that, uh, how that will be portrayed, um, a lot of people think, well, now that the migrants are stuck in Mexico, out of sight, out of mind, but there's a building kind of pressure cooker right on the border. So we'll see if some of those, those problems um, come to light this, this year, of right along our border, uh, in, in these smaller communities especially. What kind of situations are these people escaping from? Well, the Central Americans, um, it's, it's a lot of the issues are things we've seen in the past. Um, gang activity, um, organized crime, uh, of course, uh, crushing poverty in some cases, which people won't qualify for asylum because of that. And then we started seeing some impacts of climate change in these regions uh, with droughts and other, other issues. Um, so people it, it, often, the vast majority will not qualify. Um, there's been even tougher um uh, restrictions put on asylum seekers, but a lot of the issues are kind of all blended into this one um, perfect storm for people to flee uh, because you could join a gang or we'll, we'll kill you if you're a teen or we'll take your daughter. So a lot of people or, you know, we'll extort you. You have to give us part of your, your pittance that you get for a uh, payment. So 
those issues will continue in, in Central America, but a lot of people have realized that they're not able to get across the border, or if they do, they're sent back to Mexico. So that has kind of put the brakes on some of the people, that mass exodus, especially from Guatemala. Okay. Well, thank you, Angela. Um, so let's go back to Dan McKay, the staff writer for the Albuquerque Journal. And uh, let's let's really dig into what's going on with the upcoming legislative session. Uh, so, Dan, this is a shorter session than uh, than last year. This is the 30-day session. What, what do we expect that lawmakers are going to try to accomplish in that amount of time? Uh, well, a key issue for any 30-day session is, is always the budget. And uh, it's particularly interesting this year because... Uh, we uh, New Mexico is enjoying an oil boom that is uh, that has pushed revenue to record highs. Um, it's given the state uh, an opportunity to ramp up spending on education. Um, the, so that will be a, a, an issue. The governor has also made it clear um, since the end of last session that uh, she wants the legalization of recreational marijuana to be uh, a priority this year. Uh, there has been a lot of work that happened between legislative sessions on exactly what sort of the, the regulatory framework should look like, how it would be taxed, um, how to keep it from interfering with the medical cannabis program. Um, so that will also be a major issue. Um, there, uh, For the first time last year, in, in quite some time, there were some uh, gun control bills that made it through the legislature, and the governor wants to... Uh, try again with a red flag law that would allow um, uh, for the temporary seizure of, of guns from people deemed to be an immediate threat, um, like, say, maybe suicide or something like that. Um, so those are those are three biggies, but there are also, um, I don't know, there are probably at least two dozen or so other, uh, other priorities that, that are going to be taken up this session. And we are taking your questions. What topics do you think the New Mexico legislature should prioritize in the 2020 session? Call us at 277-5866 or tweet to us using the hashtag Let's Talk NM and tell us about it. Uh, Dan, let's go back to that uh, that red flag gun law. Obviously, we have seen that in other states, uh, laws like this have proven to be extremely controversial. Are we seeing a lot of debate about it in New Mexico? Yes, this is an intensely controversial legislative proposal. Um, sheriffs uh, throughout the state have um, uh, opposed uh, some of these firearms restrictions. Um, in some cases, they've said they won't, uh, they don't want to enforce them, uh, or they don't believe they can enforce them because they're impractical. Um, so there's there's been uh, a tremendous amount of opposition, especially from rural areas. Um, but of course, uh, there is also, um, you know, a push to try to keep, um, try to make schools safer, try to make people safer, um, and advocates see this as an important way to do that. That they can balance sort of the, the due process concerns with the public safety concerns. Um, this this is one of those bills that that probably will divide the Senate. Uh, almost in half and it could go either way it, it could it could pass narrowly it could be rejected narrowly um, uh, it, it did uh, pass the house last year so so there's kind of an assumption that it would make it through the house uh, this year but the the real key is is the state Senate and one of the other uh, big hot button issues is as you said uh, the proposal to legalize recreational marijuana uh, what what is your feeling? Does that have a chance this year? Uh, 
uh, I, I would say sort of the default position has generally been skepticism that it'll get through the Senate. Um, you know, these ideas uh, are not necessarily new, um, and marijuana legalization has has uh, failed to, to gain traction in the Senate previously. Um, so there there is kind of a sense that that, that will be the barrier this time as well. Uh, but also we're entering an election year. Um, the governor has made it a priority, um, so that may sway some legislators. Um, also, the idea generally has been popular with the public. Uh, there's been quite a bit of polling for o- over a course of years, and um, you know, legalization of recreational marijuana is generally, generally pretty popular. Uh, so we'll see. There could be some changing political dynamics that, that allow it to get through this year. Um, if not, it will probably be a major issue in uh, in the election cycles to come, uh, the, the primary in June and then the, uh, the general election in November. And how about you, Hannah Colton, a reporter here at KUNM? What, uh, what are you going to be keeping your eyes on uh, for the 2020 legislative session? Um, a lot of, a lot of, you know, education funding, there's going to be a lot of different education advocates are going to be asking for different, pushing for different line items, right? Um, more funding for special education, stuff like that. Um, I haven't dug too much uh, into the governor's budget yet. Um, but her, you know, one of her first priorities is this early childhood trust fund, she's calling it, and that's uh, being carried by Representative Gallegos and Senator um, Smith. And that would be a th- $320 million one-time appropriation to go into this trust fund for early education. So it's sort of a continuation of this very, you know, old discussion in the state of how to pay for more pre-K, how to pay for more early childhood care. Um, and for, you know, a decade or so, um, the idea of pulling from the um, land-grant permanent fund has come up again and again in the legislature and it gets it gets shot down in the Senate. Um but the, so this trust fund is is sort of just a different strategy of um, it's Governor Michelle Luan Grisham saying how do we how do we get more you know little kids into and where would that three hundred and twenty million dollars come from? Um, good question. Um, Dan, do you have a sense for that? Um, yeah, the uh, basically the the state has more. Um, Revenue coming in than it necessarily wants to spend on sustained programs. Like, um, if you hire, say, a teacher or a police officer, that's a salary that you have to pay every year, um, unless you uh, want to lay them off when times are bad. So the the legislature and the governor have been looking for ways to spend some of this money on one-time purposes, and um, so the, uh, the basically the oil boom uh, is providing extra revenue, and they could put it into uh, a, an account one time, just take a few hundred million and, and start basically an endowment, and then and then that would throw off interest every year, you know, generate investment income that could be sort of a sustainable source that's not subject to all the fluctuations of the oil industry. Um, so that's sort of the general. Uh, idea behind it. Okay, and Hannah, you mentioned the uh, the state land grant fund. Uh, could you give us a little talk about how that has uh, has played into debates about New Mexico New Mexico education, or how this uh, how this proposal would be different than uh, than that? Um, yeah, I 
I'm not going to be too good on details with this, but um, basically the the debate about the permanent fund is you had, you know, advocates for using it for early education for years have, have said, look, this won't destabilize the fund. We can just pull a very small percentage. Um, and you have, you know, the argument is, oh, it's a rainy day fund. And then the question comes, well, when do we say it's really a rainy day? You know, when can we actually pull from it? Um, and so, yeah, there's just been, there's been a lot of resistance to dipping into that um, fund, which some people see as, you know, we need to keep it in perpetuity for the, for the stability of the state. And so this early education proposal would be setting up a different fund for basically that same purpose? Correct. Okay. And do you have a feeling for like how, uh, how much support that's getting, Dan? Um, yeah, it looks so far like the Early Childhood Trust Fund is um, a pretty popular idea. Um, the, uh, the, the land-grant permanent fund uh, proposal uh, that, that Hannah spoke about, that is still um, on the table and advocates are still going to be pushing for that. Um, but that's a little more controversial, and, and as she mentioned, it has not moved forward in the Senate. This this separate trust fund idea seems to be gaining traction, um, uh, so it has a real. Uh, I think it has a real chance to pass. Um, there, there's, there's been a widespread recognition at the legislature among both Republicans and Democrats that that early childhood programs are a good place to spend money. You get um, you get good results according to their analysts in terms of academic outcomes uh, when you invest in pre-K and uh, some of the extended learning time uh, programs that, that Hannah mentioned, like K-5+, plus, K-3+. Plus. Um, uh, the, the main debate has been where to find the money for it. Um, and it looks so far like the, 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 the idea of a new trust fund um, is uh, getting a lot of support. Great. Well, thank you, Dan. That is all the time that we have today. Uh, thanks to everyone who called in to share your thoughts. Thank you so much to our guests. Let's keep this conversation going. Share your thoughts on Twitter, hashtag Let's Talk NM. On Facebook, just search for KUNM Radio or email Let's Talk at KUNM.org. If you missed part of the show, you can stream it online or subscribe to our podcast, which you can find wherever you find your favorite podcasts. I'm Ty Bannerman. Our engineer is Marino Spencer. Taylor Velasquez screened your calls. Uh, Bryce Dix live tweeted the show today. And Marisa DeMarco is our executive producer. This is Let's Talk New Mexico at 89.9 KUNM.